The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for the introduction, Gabe. Um, I have been coming out here. I do. I live in Northern California, actually in Berkeley. And um, actually, I'm going to take this off, which means I'm going to switch it over. Um, and I've been friends with Mark Nunberg, the founder here, for about 20 years. We actually went through a teacher training together. It started in 1997, right around this time of year. And uh, so I've known Mark and Wynn, his partner, for that time. And I first came out here in 2004 after my first book was published and the center was still in their, their house down the street. Uh, so it's been really lovely to see this community grow and the work that the two of them have put into it to make it happen, and, and particularly um, just pleased, I guess, supportive of communities that are so organic and that are Donna-based. That is, it's all just volunteer-based people offering uh, support and um, you know, they don't stand at the door and ask you to open your wallet, you know. They don't mind, you know, <laughs> but they're not demanding it. So. And um, I'd, I'd really, uh, if I recall, this is, Mark has told me that Sunday night is kind of the practice discussion night. Is that, is that right? Has anybody, anybody ever been here before who knows? Or? Sunday well, morning, Sunday evening, and Oh, Sunday morning. Darn, and here I was all ready to just not have to give a talk. <laughs> I've been at uh, Hazelden, the treatment center, for the weekend. I'm not, not in treatment myself. I was giving a workshop. That was supposed to be a joke, but I guess... <laughs> I don't know. You know. Maybe I'm coming off poorly tonight. <laughs> It might be funnier tomorrow night. You're right. You're right. I'll, I'll try it again. Then. Thank you for that advice. Always good to get some guidance on the jokes. Um, I heard a joke this weekend, but I, I don't think I can tell it right. I really wish I could because, anyway, maybe you could just laugh. You know, there's a practice. Laughing yoga, have you heard of that? Laughter. Oh, you have it here, of course. <laughs> Just keep going, see? You know? Great stuff. Um, and, and I do, there, there are a lot of things on my mind. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, trying a lot of things we're trying to get off my mind. But, um, uh, you know, several topics I've been kind of thinking about lately and and, and I believe that, you know, when I come here, Shelley, who works in the office, will ask me uh, to give a title for the talk that I'm going to give in three months. And I'm not really that kind of teacher, you know. I, I don't like to plan what I'm going to talk about too far in advance or sometimes at all in advance. Uh, so I, I, I looked it up and it said, Approaches to Practice. And I thought, what was I thinking about at that time three months ago? It's difficult. You know, there is this thing of, you know, present moment when we plan things for the future, we're imagining 
the self and the future. Um, anyway, I, and and I didn't. I should have made some other note about what I meant because um, approaches to practice. It's just anyway. Anybody want to have any questions about their approach to practice? Yes, hello. Oh, we're going to use the microphone because it's being recorded for posterity and all the people out there in radio land. Well, I, um, I just wonder if you can turn your microphone up. Can I turn my microphone up a bit? Mike. Mike can do it. Mike is the man. Okay, so that was a great question. <laughs> I'll see if I can, you know, work. If there's a dharma, I can evoke from that. More. I want more. We all want more. Yes. Ta-da. I have a question about um, working with your meditation practice when there's a lot of difficulty, Um, especially the societal difficulty we're having right now, Mm. and how how you can continue to stay centered and not get sucked in. Very good. Who, um, who clued you? Was it, does anybody remember, was anybody here when I was here last year? Does anybody remember what I talked about? Good. <laughs> so at that time I was starting to work on a book called Living Kindness. Buddhist teachings for a troubled world. And um, one of the chapters got broken in two. It's, it's kind of, that kind of sounded sad. The chapter got broken in two, but it wasn't, wasn't sad like that. Um, it's, it's kind of a sutta based, if you know, suttas are the early Buddhist teachings, discourses. It's, sutta is a Pali word which is the language that the early teachings were preserved in. You've probably heard the word sutra, if you haven't heard the word sutta. But hopefully, those of you who come around here a lot, I'm sure Mark is educating you in Pali terms. In any case, I'm using suttas, really early Buddhist teachings, to kind of jump off into um, explorations, mainly of, the, of how to work with loving kindness, compassion, uh, in our lives, uh, not just as a meditative practice, but more as a living practice. Thus the title, Living Kindness. You get it, right? Because the, fa- the common phrase is loving kindness. So I found that if you want to trick people into buying your book, I don't mean trick people. If you want to get across what the book is, if you can give a title that resonates in some way that lets them know what it's about, uh, in any case... So one of the chapters, the chapter that got split off, is called The Greed, Hatred, and Delusion Report. And it's about uh, the news. Um, And seeing the news through this lens. So the Buddha talked about these three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, and their pervasiveness, and, and the suffering that they cause. And so I, 
at one point several years ago, you know, reading the paper, and I actually subscribed to the New York Times. Tells you where I stand. Uh, so anyway, um, I realized, oh, you know, this can all be seen through this lens. Virtually, not everybody, most of the stories, particularly on the front page, fall into either a category of greed, hatred, or delusion, and often more than one. So, for instance, when we read about some corporation, uh, it's like the Wells Fargo, that thing where they were uh, creating um, uh, what were they, you know, the bank accounts, there we go. As we get old, certain words leave us. Uh, sometimes they come back. So creating bank accounts, false accounts, credit cards for people, right? Okay, it was agreed, right? They were trying to make money, right? Uh, in an unskillful way. It's okay to try to make money, nothing wrong with that. But, uh, you know, what was their intention? It was har harmful, it was really harmful to people. So instead of thinking, oh, what's going on in the world? It's, you know, it's, the world is such a mess. It's so terrible. Well, wait a minute, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha said, this is the stuff that goes on in the world. So the greed, hatred, and delusion report has been going on at least for 2,500 years. It's nothing new. No. Now that's, for me, the first step of developing equanimity around it, something that Venerable Analio calls inner distancing. It allows me to step back a little bit and see, oh, this isn't an aberration. This is natural. These are the tendencies that humans get into. Hatred. It's all over, right? I mean, this is the main news these days. It's very popular, hatred, as a topic. And in fact, people seem to revel in it. You know. uh, some of you, I know I do, I have those moments of reveling in my hatred. Uh, and it's a poison, and you can feel it. And you, you know, mindfulness, hopefully, allows us to feel that. Oh, what am I doing? You know, time to turn this off, time to look away, uh, or to step away. So greed comes out of the feeling that I need more and that if I get more, then I'll be satisfied and I will be happy. And this belief is a misunderstanding of the law of karma. Because as the Buddha you know, explained, I don't know if I don't know if he demonstrated, but he certainly made clear whatever we do repeatedly, that just becomes more of a habit. So the more that we think, speak, and act out of greed, the more greedy we become. I mean, I find it very curious that the very richest are the ones who wish to stop paying taxes. I think the poor people should be the ones who want to stop paying taxes. You know, you don't see this movement among the poor to lower their taxes. 
course, nobody would pay attention to them anyway because they don't have any money to buy the politicians. But anyway, <laughs> I'll try not to get overly political. <laughs> and if you're offended, I, I well, you know, it's, uh, I, I want to make a non-apology apology, but I would really like to make a sincere apology. That my, my, I, I will, this is not an apology, it's, this is a statement. My, I wish not to harm anyone here. And uh, so we'll see if I can come up with more of that. <laughs> so the belief that if I get more, I will be satisfied. And I think someone once asked, like J. Paul Getty, who was at the time the richest man in the world, and probably the amount of money he had now then was like laughable compared to rich people today, but anyway. And they said, well, you know, you've got so much money. You're the richest person in the world. How much money would be enough? And some of you must have heard this line. Just a little more. <laughs> I actually wrote a song one time called Just a Little More Money. You know, and that's, you know, it's interesting that the other study, right? Well, not, that wasn't a study. But the study that invest, asked people how much money they feel as if they, need, they would need to have to be comfortable. And across the board, from the poorest to the richest, 10%. So poor people just feel, if I just had 10% more money, I'd be okay. And rich people think, if I just had 10% more money. Now, what does that tell you? <laughs> it's never enough. It's never enough. You can see why I like to work with alcoholics. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, one drink is too many and a thousand isn't enough. You know, and that really captures it. Right? But it's the same with money, right? Have you ever felt that you had enough money? I, I, I guess some people are more spiritual than me, but I've never felt that. So greed. <laughs> Hatred. On a, you know, when we talk about this in terms of the hindrances of desire and aversion, the, the, you know, by the way, this was actually a topic I was considering making my topic. So, uh, yeah, aversion on the meditative or the personal level is the wish just to move away from something, to get rid of a feeling, or get out of a situation, or get rid of a person. So that you know, I think that the point, or at least kind of the starting understanding of the greed, hatred, and delusion report is that what I read in the newspaper is what's in my own mind and my own heart. That's really the point. That this world out there is created from by the world in here, in our each of our inner worlds. And this is why the Buddha said we must transform our inner life, ourselves, our hearts and minds, if we want to change the world. No political system, no economic system can change people's hearts and minds. They have tried, as we know. Communism is a particularly good example. You know, the philosophy of everyone should have the same amount, everything should be fairly distributed, evenly distributed, sounds really good. 
but as long as human beings who are driven by greed, hatred, and delusion are put in charge of that system, it will never really function in the way that it's ideally imagined. So hatred is, you know, if, if I can get rid of these feelings, these situations, and then on the external level, if I can get rid of those people, those people, them, if I can control those things, if I can suppress those things. And well, I'm not sure. I'm gonna, I'd like to talk about our relationship to the earth because our relationship to the earth is very tied into this. People talk about how they love nature. If we loved nature, we would not be in this building. There's a reason why the history of the human race is a constant struggle with nature. Nature is not really like nature. What, first of all, nature is just a construction. There is no such thing as nature, as something separate from something. Right? This is that another one of those you know, human delusions. There's nature and then there's us, right? I always think it's interesting, man-made. And I'm like, well, where did... (laughs) I don't think we've made anything. Put things together out of existing things or develop anyway. So we have this relationship with nature that uh, it is ours. We can control it. And, in fact, we have the right to do anything with it we want. It's not working out so well. This is part of delusion. So, delusion. Delusion is the belief that greed and hatred will work. (laughs) That's the fundamental delusion. It's the misunderstanding of how cause and effect works. The law of karma. The idea that we can take all we want and do anything we want to the earth and there, nothing bad will happen. You know, it's fine. That we are separate from it. We are separate from nature. So, this is all very cheerful, I know. Um, You know, I was thinking before I came here that I I wanted to let you people know that in most of North America, May is considered to be part of spring. So, I'm not sure if you realize that, because there are other places you could be. But, you know, I presume you choose this. You know, it's okay. I really... I love Minnesota. It's really great, but this is terrible weather. January, January, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I might fly over sometime and see what it looks. See how it looks. Yeah, this is too hot. Yeah. So, so your question really was. So, really, I'm. You know, all I've done is laid the groundwork, right? So, this is. 
you know, in a, in a sense, what I've described is the first two noble truths, the truth of suffering and the truth of the cause of suffering, that greed, <laughs> hatred, and delusion cause suffering. The thing is that when you pick up the report, the greed, hatred, and delusion report, and look at it, not only are you reading about suffering, but what happens? You get triggered into suffering. So this is the question, right? This is the question for each of us. How do we not fall into that? How do we not fall into hatred or greed or delusion when, when looking at the greed, hatred, and delusion report? And this is what our practice is for. Right after the recent election, there was an election last November, you might have heard about it. Um, Jack Cornfield, who's the founder of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California, he, he gave a talk and he, and he said, this is why we've been practicing. I thought that was a very wise statement. He tends to be pretty wise. And it was very helpful, too. It was very helpful because it was saying, again, this isn't a mistake. This isn't something you know, to be overwhelmed by or, or surprised by. It's like you have been developing a heart of compassion and equanimity and wisdom, and now you get to use it. Now is the, you know, we've, been, we've done the preparation. Now we get to... to Enter the fray and see, see what, what is there in our hearts and what still needs to be developed. So I think the idea of, uh, I think equanimity is really important at this time. And equanimity is really an expression of wisdom. And again, this goes back to this idea that this is you know, these are timeless behaviors. You know, in the time of the Buddha, uh, there was a king, King Bimbisara. And he, he had a son, Prince Ajatasattu. And he knew that the prince wanted to be king, was kind of anxious to take over. And King Bimbisara was a, a student of the Buddha. And he was kind of like, ready to move on and, and would rather you know, step out of that role and be able to just practice and live a simpler life. So he, he abdicated and gave over the throne to his son, who became king, Ajatasattu. However, one of Ajatasattu's advisors, who happened to be uh, the Buddha's uh, evil cousin, Devadatu, told him, you know, as long as your father's alive, he could always claim the throne back. You know, this is not good. You shouldn't just let him be out there. Who knows what he's saying to people? Who knows what he's going to do? King Ajatasattu was convinced, and he had his father thrown in prison and uh, executed. Killed his father. You know? If you look, I mean, that's the time of the Buddha. Uh, have you ever read English history? I have a book on the history of England. All it is is the history of kings killing uh, and other kings, you know, or people who want to be king killing the king and becoming king. It's just very popular. 
you know, just sort of the thing to do. Apparently, King Ajatasattu's son uh, later killed him, and then his son killed him, and eventually the people of Magadha got sick of that and found another family to be king, which maybe they should have thought about, you know, getting a queen, I don't know. Uh, just one, one thought. Uh, not that that's a cure for greed, hatred, and delusion, but you know, so you know this stuff's been going on for a long time, and the Buddha lived through it. And uh, you know, interestingly, just as a side note, uh, King Ajatasattu came to hear the Buddha speak, and uh, this famous sutta uh, called "The Fruits of the Holy Life," and. Uh, it's a beautiful, long sutta. It's one in the gradual teachings where the Buddha takes you through the entire teachings. And Ajatasattu keeps asking, what's the fruit of the holy life? And the Buddha keeps building and building and building till we get, you know, we start with the simplicity of, you know, the beginning of the path, generosity and uh, precepts and then working with the hindrances and then developing the jhanas and then the awakening and going through the stages of awakening. And, and uh, Prince Ajatasattu uh, is very inspired, but after he leaves, the Buddha turns to his uh, monks and says, had he not killed his father, he would have become enlightened tonight. The Buddha was kind of psychic like that. However, you know, killing your father in the Buddhist tradition is considered one of the, the about the only thing that's worse is killing a Buddha. He said, unfortunately, he's going to have to live in the hell realms in his, in his next uh, birth because of that. One can hope uh, that that's true, that that happens to people who do things like that. Uh, but that would be an expression of hatred to hope that, so I really probably shouldn't hope that. Um, it's difficult being a Buddhist. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I think this 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 idea of uh, inner distancing does that phrase make any sense to you? Inner distancing. So this is I mentioned this before. Venerable Analio, who's a great uh, Buddhist scholar and practitioner, who's really becoming kind of one of the one of the real uh, I don't know what to call him. We don't have stars in Buddhism, but you know, real respected leaders of Dharma in the West. Um, he describes equanimity as this uh, inner distancing, and I think it's really important when we when we think about something like that to not get it mixed up with either suppression or uh, dissociating. So there is this way in which we can kind of go like, oh man, like I don't want to pay attention, I don't want to know about it. Or we can be like, everything's fine, it's okay, nothing bothers me. You know, but rather, this kind of stepping back. And I think of that as the stance of wisdom. The Dharma is always asking us to kind of look at things differently. And the way I usually characterize this as seeing our experience through the lens of dharma rather than through the lens of self. 
So when Kevin picks up the newspaper and reads it, he gets upset, right? Ah, you know, myself feels threatened, feels angry, feels judgmental of the greed, hatred, and delusion that I'm reading. But when I let go of that and I distance myself just enough to see more clearly, to see this greater picture, the space in which this is happening, I realize, oh, all things are impermanent. Things arise and they disappear. Suffering is caused by greed, hatred, and delusion. Freedom comes by letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's a peace that comes with that reflection, with that view. Right? And we, this isn't a passive stance. You know? The Buddha was not a passive person. He was quite engaged in the world. But we have to first protect ourselves. We can't be of any use if we are caught up in this maelstrom of anger and frustration. We're, we're no use. And it's very hard because we can justify our judgments and our angers. We can you know, very logically go through all the reasons. That's fine. But if that's what we're doing, we're not actually changing anything. Because once again, we are becoming the greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, Ajahn Amaro, you, some of you I'm sure know, gives a great uh, line that he uses about when you're stuck in traffic and you're frustrated with the traffic, remember, you are traffic. <laughs> You know? It's not like you get to be something separate because you're in a, you're a car. You are traffic. So when we turn on those people, them, him, her, what they are doing, this is why there was the problem with the so-called you know, anti-war movement in the 60s that it was an expression of anger. Well, where do you think war comes from? It starts with human anger. This is why the Buddhist Peace Fellowship came to be in the, in the 70s. You know, some Buddhist practitioners who had been very engaged in politics, really, they wanted to find a way to express their social concerns, but not in a way that recreated the same model, right? It's like the dysfunctional family. The child that gets abused grows up to be an abuser. Right? So if we want to, you know, are angry with the, with the war and we go out and start throwing Molotov cocktails to show our anger, what are we, you know, what are we accomplishing? What are we changing? So hard. How often does the, the revolution, you know, turn into just another dictatorship. Right? So this is our challenge. But you know, at its heart, I think, is, is to not add suffering for ourselves to start. Right? I mean, that's, the th that's what we're, as individuals, we struggle with. It's like, 
I want to do something, I care, but I'm so frustrated, right? So, so one of the antidotes, I've, I've been working with this beautiful piece, Venerable Analio has a, a book called Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhist Meditation, and the last chapter is called Practical Instructions. And you know, I glanced at the other chapters, but I was like, give me that practical stuff. And I actually made a little table of what he had in there. Because he has the five hindrances, and then he, ha- he talks about the uh, divine abodes as antidotes. And uh, one of the ones he brings up is sympathetic joy. And, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting. He, he talks about sympathetic joy as an antidote to sloth and torpor, to sleepiness in practice. Because joy awakens you, brightens you. But, uh, well, here's another way he says sympathetic joy, and I think it applies to more than this. He says, for, for desire, working with sensual desire, he says, generating wholesome forms of non-sensual joy, so joy that's not based in some sense experience, it provides a readily available source of happiness within, which deprives the search for happiness outside of its main wellspring in an inner feeling of want and discontent. So he's saying, you know, normally we're looking for a fix for pleasure externally because internally we feel some lack or some feeling of want and discontent. So if we cultivate joy within us, what a concept, right? Is that possible, to just have joy within yourself? So, so sympathetic joy is this response to the world around us that, that makes us happy. So today, I, uh, as a, towards the end of uh, the retreat at uh, Hazelden, I, I had just gotten some pictures of my grandnephew and my niece uh, with him. And uh, I just put them on my computer and I walked around the room and held them in front of people and just said, look at that, see that? What does that do? And, every, you know, bright energy, right? Uh, so I, I just had um, dinner at the Birchwood and, and there were these two little kids. Uh, and, I, and they went outside and they were playing, they were laughing, and, and I just watched them. And, I was, and it was very like conscious, right? Because I've been thinking about this stuff I was just teaching about. I was like, oh. I was kind of just in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, this is sympathetic joy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it, you know. Like, I'm gonna really get it. I'm gonna, you know. And one, at one, one of the kids like looked in and he could see me looking through the glass. And then he went over, and they, you know, right? And I was just like laughing, and it just was this joy. I was like, so I thought. Okay, because uh, this is one of the main ways. I think one of the easiest ways to get sympathetic joy is to see children. Right? Uh, it's difficult not to smile when we see beautiful children. Or children, you know, hopefully they're, you know, in some sense they're all beautiful. But you know, I was looking across the street at the trees, and I thought, oh, you know, actually trees really kind of make me happy too. <laughs> You know, sort of, oh, yeah, that's why people like to walk in nature. You know, and I just started kind of thinking about all the things. Yeah, music really makes me happy. There's so many things that can then awaken joy within us. That's 
was James Barris's <coughs> teaching in his book, Awakening Joy. Um, so, you know, we need this, right? We need to very consciously look for this if we're going to deal with all this stuff. And remember that there is this madness that seems to just be created generation after generation. And then there is also this joy. So, you know, this practice, this Buddhist meditation practice, one of the facets of it, it is training us to be more intentional about our use of attention. So that instead of just being pulled around by the stimulants, stimulants that are outside us, that we choose, okay, I glanced at the report today. I'm going to put that away because you know, one of the things about the report is that if you miss a day, you don't miss anything. <laughs> That's why you just remember that it's the greed. What happened yesterday? Oh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay, good. I'll just turn to the sports page. Unfortunately, greed, hatred, and delusion have been polluting sports too, but we won't go there. I like to maintain some innocence. But we, you know, this is the other thing we have to do. Like, uh, like, um, like what? Uh, I don't know. We can use the report kind of like homeopathy. You just take a little bit, right? And then, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, that's good. I got, I got my, you know, my, I'm vaccinated, maybe. But, you know, we have to be very careful with it. We don't want to overdose on it. And it does become, dare I say, addictive. You know, there's, I can go for years at a time. In fact, I think it was sometime around 2008 that I stopped watching the TV news. And it was sometime around 2016 in the fall that I started watching it again. There's certain channels that I tend to watch. Occasionally I glance at another channel, just, ah. Okay. Yeah. That's what's going on. Okay, good. Let's get back to the ones who are yelling at the things that I want to yell at. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm right. We're right. Right? We're right. Yeah. So we have to protect ourselves. You know, we do. We, it's not necessary for you to know everything that happens every day in the news. And this is, you know, again, we, we have to, I'm going to remind you of something that you already know, right? It, it goes back to that line, the famous line for the news, if it bleeds, it leads, right? The goal of the news is to get you to look at it. And that's because the people who own the news are greedy. (laughs) And if they can get you to get excited by the greed, hatred, and delusion report, they get to feed their greed. 
Right? So it's not really that these are the most important things that happened in the world today. There were probably some really different, wonderful, fabulous, beautiful things that happened in the world today. But that doesn't get down deep into the greed, hatred, and delusion self that's so you know, easily sucked in. Right? We are suckers, aren't we? It's amazing. We fall for it. Oh, my God! Oh, wow! That happened. <laughs> Excuse me. So, blood sport becomes. So, for some reason, as I've been working on this book, I, I, and uh, first of all, I have to make a confession. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Um, I don't do a lot of loving-kindness meditation. It's not really a form. I don't love the form. I, I, I like, I, when I work with loving-kindness and compassion, I work with it more as a spatial and a sense felt. I don't like the phrases and stuff, but that, that's not the point. As I've been working on this, I found that This is one of the beautiful things about writing on a topic, right? And when I say when I'm working on this, I meant the book that I'm writing, right? If that reference was too quick. This, this view comes up a lot. And I, I often hear this song, certain line from this song in my head. It just appears in my mind. I... I hear the word love, and then I hear love, 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 love. Wow. I, the rest, I don't need the rest of it. That's enough. And it's just amazing how just letting that come through my mind, that's my meta practice, actually. It's kind of an accidental meta practice. And obviously, John Lennon was trying to send that teaching out you know, to the world. And it's kind of a you know, beautiful thing that it still lives. And, and music, I'm a musician, and, so, and I, I, I'm sure all of you, we all have that experience of how songs get stuck in our head, right? And uh, it's beautiful when it can be a song that just. Just the words then is, oh, right. And something just comes over. So, so yeah, we're faced with this great challenge, and this is our practice now. This is our practice. How do we live? What are we going to do with this? You know? Are we going to, you know, fall into the trap? Playing that game of of letting ourselves be um, pummeled, you know, or, or ourselves be feel abused or feel fearful or angry or just try to want to turn it off. Can we open our hearts? Can we see with compassion? 
You know, one of the teachings on compassion is to reflect on what it is that is motivating your enemy. The enemy is just a general term. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a personal conflict, but the enemy is the person with whom we battle in our minds. What is, and, and our enemy, typically, the reason they are our enemy in our minds is that they are acting out of greed, hatred, or delusion, or all of the above. Right? And the compassion tells us that if they are acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion, then they are creating their own suffering. And that the skillful and wise response to that is to wish for them to be free from suffering. Now, if they are free from suffering, that's going to mean they're going to stop acting out of greed, hatred, and delusion, and so they're no longer our enemy. Woo-hoo. You know, one, one cure you know, for that. But I, I think it is really useful to reflect on that and to see the suffering inside our enemy and to understand that their actions, when they are unskillful, are actions that are coming out of their own un, usually unacknowledged, unseen suffering. You know? I mean, people act out of greed, hatred, and delusion because they don't understand. If they knew better, you know, if they understood what they were creating, they wouldn't do this. That's called ignorance in Buddhism. Also delusion. It's the same, essentially, the synonym. So to hate the person who is suffering in that way is, is cruel. But hard not to do. <laughs> so hard. Well, any other questions? Yeah. Can, can, would you mind using the microphone? Thanks. Let me, uh, is it on? Oh, it's on. Do we follow the same format as uh, AA? Name and, uh, <laughs> name and stuff, or what? No, uh, just say my name's Isaiah, and uh, my question is: uh, Well, in this world, I've come to the conclusion that uh, that we have a delusion of what love is. Kind of lost the right. definition of what love is. Is kind of I I hear a lot of people say, "I don't know if I love her yet," but then yeah. I I have a different definition of love. It's more of action yeah. that is given out, right. not. Not at the time, but not um, not over the course of time that you choose to love somebody, but you automatically choose to in the beginning. Um, what are your feelings about that? Oh, uh, uh, you know the the definite. <laughs> it's a very interesting topic and question, and I, I I'm not sure I'll answer exactly your question, <laughs> but. Um, 
that, so let me just say, in, in the Buddhism, we have this word metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is translated as loving kindness. And this is something I address in this book because it's like the first question, well, what is love? And it's interesting to me that this very short word in the Pali language requires us to use two words together, a hyphenate. And why is that? Well, because in English, the word love has some, you know, a touchy little, it's, it's not really clear what love is, right? That love can mean I want to have sex with you, or you make love, making, that's such a weird little euphemism. It can be just about how you feel about chocolate ice cream, you know. It, you know, it can have this broad range of meanings that don't have anything to do with being kind. And so we have to add this word kindness to the definition of, lo- of metta. And that right away, it kind of tells us that we have a problem in our in our language, <laughs> that, that we don't have a word for this, that we have to use two words to explain it. And the, so, so I'm talking about love, but I mean the, the, the kind of love where you're kind. Oh, oh, thanks, you know. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's very confused in us. We... It, it takes a kind of, um, I mean, it, it, this understanding of what loving kindness is doesn't come so much through translating, but through touching it within yourself. And so we have moments in our lives when we realize, oh, this is love. You know, um, and it doesn't have anything to do with desire you know, or clinging or, you know, any kind of wanting or possession or control. So it's very difficult to be in love, right, and not have desire and the, or the wish to control or both, you know, uh, or need. Uh, so that's another way. Uh, you know, I love you. I need you, right? So that's not... From a Buddhist standpoint, that isn't love. That's craving. It's you know comes out of ego, comes out of uh, some lack inside ourselves, as as Venerable Analia says, um, out of an inner feeling of want and discontent. So this is one of the things that we're trying to learn in this practice. you know, it's a learning. It's it's a learning only through a felt experience. It's not like, oh, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to get information. It's not that kind of learning. It's allowing ourselves to be touched. Basically, this morning in our workshop, there was this guy there who was very, just cliche, put it, very manly, very kind of strong and works. Uh, you know, as a fishing guide and a ski instructor, and and we we were talking about love, and he started crying, you know, and 
it, and he started talking about how it was really hard for him to, to let himself be open and be touched in this way, in the way that we were talking about. And you know, my, for myself, after my first meditation retreat, where I thought I was going to get enlightened and be blissed out, <coughs> excuse me, for the rest of my life, or at least for a couple of weeks, I just cried every day for a week afterwards because my heart started to open. So this practice opens us up to an authentic love. And as you say, then, the natural response to that when there's love of another is to, be, is to serve. And I think this was the line that uh, Ram Dass's teacher had, which is, love all, serve all. You know? And this is where the Buddhist path comes to. When the Buddha became enlightened, he then spent the rest of his life act, t- teaching people how to be free from suffering out of his own compassion. In the 12 steps, we have the same thing. You get to step 12. Having had a spiritual awakening, as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others. So that, that's the expression of love. And, and I remember reading that. I think it might have been Scott Peck in The Road Left's Traveled saying that, that the expression of love was when you want someone else to be happy. You know, and you want to do, you want to help them to be happy. You know, that's very different from, I want to go to bed with you, or, you know, I, I want to have this, you know, dependent relationship. I want you to fulfill some need for me. I want you to be happy, and and parents usually experience this, and that's one of the ways that people really feel love and experience love. But the Buddha said. We should wish for all beings to be equally happy. We shouldn't discriminate even by our, we shouldn't wish for our children to be any more happy than anyone else. It's very challenging. I mean, the Buddha sets a very high bar, but he's like, no, there's really no like levels here. All beings radiating kindness over the entire world. I mean, when I hear that, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. What I hear is, not only should we love all beings, we should love the earth too, <laughs> you know, uh, which would be nice. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, uh, we have a few minutes. Let's just close with some practice of loving kindness and uh, I'll, t- I'll just take you through a, a, a brief um, radiating, radiating loving kindness. So try beginning by just bringing a smile to your face and thinking of something that makes you happy in a very simple way. A child or a place, a vision. Something, a song, let yourself just feel your own inner joy, your own inner love. It's there. 
always there, just waiting to be awakened. And the Buddha says radiating over the entire world, we can start by radiating throughout our own body, our whole body, immersing our body with love. Imagine that. Your entire body just filled with love. Filled to the point that it radiates out from your body, out to everyone in this room and fills each of them and fills the space in this hall. Loving kindness, radiating outwards throughout this building, out into the neighborhood, out to all the people who live nearby, the people who are passing by in cars and airplanes, to the birds in the trees and the sky, the animals live in the earth, loving kindness into the earth itself, into the air, the sky itself. Loving, feeling gratitude for this oxygen that keeps you alive moment by moment, radiating kindness outward throughout this city and out into the plains that surround it, the farms and the lakes, the villages, all the beings, the humans and all the others, spreading outwards across this continent, out to the seas, radiating kindness, loving kindness around the planet, touching all beings on earth, touching and penetrating <coughs> the entire earth to its core, loving kindness out into the air, into space. Loving kindness, touching all beings and all things. Vast, limitless, boundless love. And resting in that space. May all beings be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. May all beings be filled with love. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.